this idea that OT programs are supposed to prepare you for everything that you might ever encounter, I think is frankly ridiculous and unrealistic. And if that's what you want, then you're going to have to go to school for 10 years and you're going to have to pay for that. And nobody's going to do that. So the whole idea is to teach you how to learn and how to think like an occupational therapist. What makes occupational therapy practitioners different is the way that we think, not necessarily what we do. Hi, I'm Clarice Grody, and welcome to the Amplify OT podcast. I'm an occupational therapist by trade and a policy wonk by choice. This podcast is here to help you survive and thrive in the U.S. healthcare system through a better understanding of policy, advocacy, and value-based care. So let's dive in. Welcome back to another episode of the Amplify OT podcast. I am so happy to be posting this interview or discussion with Brock from the Occupied podcast. I love his podcast, especially the in-depth conversations that he gets to have. So this is a longer episode than what you typically will have here on the Amplify OT podcast, but it's such a fantastic discussion that I wanted to make sure to share it with you. We talk a little bit about my background and how I got into occupational therapy, and I don't think that's something I share very often, Um, not because it's private, just because I prefer to give you information than talk about myself. So if you want to hear a little bit more about my background and growing up and how I got involved in all of this stuff, then definitely listen in. We also have an in-depth conversation around the full scope OT movement on social media, our thoughts around the movement some of the messaging behind it and what we think of it. Also, great conversations around the role of professional associations and how we can really create change within our profession and the importance of being involved as well as supporting your associations that are doing some of this advocacy work on your behalf every single day. So without further ado, I will let you go ahead and dive right into the podcast. We kind of start in mid-conversation with Brock asking me, how I found occupational therapy. And I hope you enjoy this podcast, whether you're driving in between patient homes, driving to work, or you're sitting down with a nice glass of wine. All right, here we go. Are you ready? Ready, Freddie. So I usually, well, I start pretty much every episode with the same question. And it's that I I have this theory that we don't find OT, that somehow OT finds us. So how did OT find you? Well, I originally went to undergrad, went to the University of Iowa to study music therapy. I am a musician by trade. So I went to the University of Iowa to play flute to get my... So I actually do have a Bachelor of Arts in flute performance and music performance. And so I wanted to find a way to to make money while still being a musician, right? Not that it's not impossible, but didn't really want the hard gig life. So I looked at music therapy. I've always really liked science and health and thought, oh, what a perfect merging. Well, come to find out that music therapy is a lot of singing and playing guitar. Neither of those two things can I do and definitely can't do them well. So needed to find something else. And there just wasn't enough research and job security in music therapy. So... I was looking for a new career and my mom recommended to me occupational therapy because she has Dupuytren's contractures. So she had had numerous hand surgeries 
which is also part of why I didn't want to be a musician long-term because Dupertrans, right, brings in your fourth and fifth finger and kind of locks them in, which would make it very difficult to play the flute, especially if that sets in around my 40s and 50s, that would have put a pretty hard cap Mm. on when I could continue to be a musician. So thinking long-term already. So she recommended occupational therapy. I shadowed her occupational therapist, outpatient hand therapist, found it really fascinating, did more research. I found out it was only a master's degree, check there, had a good starting income when I graduated, and then also kind of had that perfect balance of creativity with science. So it really kind of checked all the boxes that I was looking for in a career because I thought about, you know, going to med school, but that's four years plus like residency. And so maybe you make a little bit more money, but you don't really start your career till you're like mid thirties. And so the fact that I could get my master's and still have a decent job prospect was really attractive to me. So I don't have some kind of big heartfelt story about, you know, the early way that OT impacted me. It was a per usual, very fairly logical decision is to check the boxes of what I was looking for in a career. And I didn't look back. I completely disagree that that's per usual. That is the most forethought I've ever heard from a young person making a massive career decision. (laughs) Who thinks about the health conditions that they're going to have in their 40s when they're that young? I don't even think about it now, and I'm only a few years away. Someone who's raised by a lawyer and an intelligence analyst in the U.S. Army. So, yeah, so always thinking about what could possibly go wrong in life (laughs) and how to. Well, when you say it like that, it sounds I was thinking about... Long-term disability insurance is like a 20-year-old, you know? Jeez. This is why I do policy, because that's how my brain thinks. Yeah. Oh, bloody hell. I don't, yeah, that's definitely not normal. You say as per usual. That's definitely not as per usual. I've talked to a lot per of people. usual for me, maybe. <laughs> Most people in their 20s are like, oh, where are we going to go drinking or something? Well, I'm not going to say that wasn't part of the equation. So. Oh, I was saying it didn't happen, but... That's for a lot of people in their 20s, that's probably the priority. Well, yeah. And, you know, and I think I'll admit it made it really hard to write essays when I was applying to OT school because they always kind of want some sort of essay around like how occupational therapy impacted your life or why you wanted to become an occupational therapist. And I really had to think hard because I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't write an essay around that it pays well and has good job prospects. I'm like, that's not going <laughs> to convince that's not a really emotional enough story of being like, well, this is a very logical decision. So I came up with other things that Columbia, if you're listening, I didn't lie on my essays. I just may have exaggerated some of the emotional attachment. Well, it obviously worked. It worked. I love OT. I think it's a great profession. So where where did you end up after you graduated? So obviously you said you went to Columbia, finished your, your course there. So I moved back home to Kansas City, Missouri after I graduated, and I got my first job in home health, worked there for nine months, and then went and worked in acute care. But while I was doing that, I was also volunteering. So I did a third level two field work. So I have my master's, so I didn't do a capstone. I did a third level two field work with the American Occupational Therapy Association with their federal affairs team. And so that's where I really kind of learned what AOTA does, what AOTA is, why it's important, and what the federal affairs team is. And that's really what kind of made it click for me that this is what I want to do. I want to do policy. I want to do regulation. So once I graduated, I immediately got involved. I applied to be an advocacy chair with our home and community health special interest section with AOTA. I was appointed to that a few months after graduating. So never too early to get involved. So I held that position for three years. And then because that's how long the terms are three year terms. 
And then I also got involved with my state association on their advocacy committee. And a year after doing that, I was asked to run for the director of practice. So about a year into graduating, at that point, I'd left home health. I had started working in acute care. I ran and was elected to the board of directors for the Missouri Occupational Therapy Association as the director of practice, which primarily is in charge of kind of understanding practice in the state and setting our legislative agenda in Missouri. So all while working full time as a clinician, I was doing all of the volunteering on the side with the goal of trying to move towards a career in policy. Wow. (laughs) Again, not usual, but I like it. So I guess that that background really has sort of had an impact on where you want to end up within the profession, like you're talking about what your parents do and that kind of stuff and how that sort of sparked an interest in in that kind of policy thought. Yeah, I mean, politics has always had a big impact on our home, not only because my dad is a lawyer, he deals a lot in like kind of financial type law and securities, and he did a lot of advocacy on behalf of payday loan reform in the state of Missouri. And then my sister has type one uh, diabetes. And so my parents were also very involved in advocating for funding for research for type one diabetes, like went to DC and those sorts of things with the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. And so they did a lot of work there. So I saw the impact of advocacy. And then obviously, we always paid close attention to what was going on in government as someone who had a parent who was in the military politics deeply impacted us. You know, when 9-11 happened, my mom was activated. So it's always something that we've paid really close attention to. And so I've seen how much of an impact it has beyond just what our environment looks like or the passage of the Affordable Care Act really impacted me and our family in that, you know, I was able to stay on my parents' health insurance until I graduated from grad school. That wouldn't have happened without that legislation or that myself and my sister would be able to have health insurance when we moved off my parents' insurance because we both have pre-existing conditions. I have asthma, she has type 1, and before the Affordable Care Act in 2012 or Obamacare, as most pe- a lot of people know it, we would have probably had a really hard time finding health insurance. Because I even remember as a kid, my pediatrician said she wasn't going to put asthma on my medical record because she didn't want it to impact my ability to get health insurance when I was an adult. And I was like, how crazy is that? that your doctors had to lie on your medical records in order to not hurt you as an adult. That's nuts. Welcome to the U.S. <laughs> and our healthcare system. <laughs> Can't 100% say that that's not how it works here, just because I don't know, but I don't think it happens. Like that. I mean, we've got, obviously, public health, and it's not affecting on that, but you can get private health as well. I don't think something like asthma, anyway, would impact your ability to get private health insurance here. Yeah. It was one of those where like you could maybe get health insurance, but they just wouldn't cover anything that was a prior existing condition. Yeah. So I could get health insurance, but it wouldn't cover anything related to asthma or my sister could get health insurance, but it wouldn't recover anything related to type one, which Which is kind of what then that defeats the whole purpose of having health insurance. Yeah. That's rough. Wow. And it's interesting. I think, your perspective and why it seems so different from other people's is, I guess I'm probably drawing on my own personal experiences. Yeah, okay, I, I pay attention to the what's happening in government, but for most people it's like that's where it stops. And it's like, oh, okay, mm-hmm. such and such got elected or they're trying to push this legislation through or this is going to impact us. And most people don't really have the level of understanding to know how that's going to impact them on a, say, 
in this instance, like an OT, like a professional level. Like, okay, they're going to push this through or this other party's been elected to government. How is that going to impact? Until, obviously, in Australia, it's OTA comes out and says this party, because so before each election, OTA is usually pretty good about sort of, they usually will send out, uh, I guess, a summary of how the different parties are going to lean with regards to health-related issues. Like they're just trying to essentially make their their members or give their members the opportunity to make a more informed choice when it comes to election days and stuff like that. But for most people, until they get something like that, wouldn't have a clue. And I'm saying most people, like me included, I'm I'm aware based on what's on the news, but I'm not that tapped in that I probably properly understand the the politics side of it. And I think that's fair in the US I think people forget that when you're elect when you're voting you're not just voting for your own personal beliefs yeah. you're also voting really for whether or not you can continue to practice your job and get paid the same you know the way that the you know we primarily have two parties the republicans and the democrats and depending on which way you vote you know they support different things in healthcare or have different visions for how our healthcare system should look which is a large reason why I even went to the fieldwork at AOTA, because that was when the Republicans took control of the House and the Senate. Donald Trump won presidency. And there was a lot of rhetoric around repealing the Affordable Care Act. And they did make numerous efforts to repeal the Affordable Care Act, which was the you know big change overhaul of the U.S. healthcare system that provided a lot of opportunities that people probably didn't even realize that they're utilizing until that would have been taken away. So... That's a large reason why I got involved, because I said, well, you know, if they're going to try and take this away, I want to make sure that my voice is represented, because that bill also had a huge impact on occupational therapy, because it required certain health insurance programs to cover occupational therapy services. And so if an OT isn't covered, then no one's paying for it, Mm. and therefore jobs go down. And I was like, I am not about to graduate into an area where all of a sudden all the jobs wash up (laughs) and disappear, because they changed how health insurance works. Yeah, we saw similar, or not quite the same, but similar sort of thing during COVID. So there's a lot of different funding avenues here that did currently exist before COVID, but then during COVID they were sort of extended or OT was included in a lot of ones that weren't previously included. And they were initially included sort of on a set time, so it might have been 12 months or so. And then they got yeah. extended, etc. And there's a lot of advocacy, mostly from OT Australia, around those and making sure that OT was included in those. That, like, if that didn't happen, the number of private practices that I reckon would have gone under during that sort of, especially that initial period where there was lots of lockdowns and that sort of stuff. Yeah would have been exponential like it would have been so damaging to the profession not just the profession but like people who actually utilize ot services because there would have been essentially essential workers so like government services so our public health services and that's it because no one else would have been deemed essential and wouldn't have been able to get paid for things like telehealth and that kind of stuff so but that was again another thing where people aren't tapped in enough to understand that, hey, this is going to impact or how this is going to impact us as a a profession, as me as a a worker. But part of me is like, do they need to be? Or do we just need to 
like I'm a member of ATA, am I all right just supporting the organization that does know what they're doing and will sort of, I guess, go into bat on our behalf? Yeah, right. That's part of that. It's a privilege to not have to worry about it. Hmm. And I think that's, you know, I always say that the best way that you can be an advocate, especially if you don't have a lot of time, is by being a member of your state and your national associations, because regardless of whether or not you're a member, you are benefiting from the work that they're doing on your behalf. They're not going to pass a piece of legislation that says this only impacts AOTA members. You know, that would be ridiculous. So we are inherently benefiting from the work, but then people see the negative effects when there aren't enough people who are members because, right, what associations are able to do is a direct reflection of how much money they have, how many members they have, because you can't have, like, let's say, like, it would be fantastic if we had, like, five lobbyists Mm. at AOTA, but you can't hire five lobbyists if you don't have enough money to do that, or people would love to see additional resources. Well, all those resources take time and they take money. And unfortunately, we have to rely a lot on volunteers like what I did with AOTA because there just isn't enough membership dues and money to hire someone full time to do that kind of work. And so you kind of you kind of get what you pay for. And so if you want more to be done, you have to really encourage more people to be members and you don't have to agree with everything any organization does because there's always inherently problems within any organization. But, you know, you investing in your membership is basically buying you the right to not have to pay as close attention to what's going on as you probably should. You know, I say it's my investment in continuing to be able to be an occupational therapist because all it takes is one really crappy piece of legislation for OT to no longer be paid for by Medicare or for OT to no longer have a license in your state, which would, I mean, rock people's world if they lost their licensure because a lot of people weren't there who worked to get it in the first place. So they don't understand how hard it was to get licensed and how much credibility that brings. So really being a member is basically buying yourself the right to not have to do the work on your own because you're supporting the people who are doing that work on your behalf. Yeah. And like, I know here, like you said, they've got people that are professional lobbyists. I don't know what they call them in Australia. I'm assuming it's probably similar. That work for OTA, who mm-hmm. have those connections in the, the political world, that do that kind of work on our behalf. And like 90% of the time, they are working on it before I've even heard of it. They'll get the heads up that something's going through or that someone's proposing some wild idea and they'll have started working on it before they even announce that they're working on it, if they even announce that they're working on it, which is a whole other issue that I, I, th- I feel like they're, they're probably not doing themselves as a professional body the greatest service in that they a lot of the time they're doing the work but it's not being promoted, so a lot of people don't see that. Exactly. Right. And that also takes time and money, right? Communications. And do you want them to spend more time telling you what they did or just doing it? Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. And that's what I think is hard. I always say, like, if uh, just because you didn't see the fire doesn't mean there was one that was already put out. Yeah. And that's kind of how it works in politics. There are so many things that happen that you never hear about or you never saw the original plan because someone intervened on your behalf before it rocked your world. I think it's kind of like a bit of a circle with professional organizations in that you kind of need to promote what you're doing in order to, so that members feel like they're, you know, getting their money's worth or they see what their money is is doing. 
but then like you said you need to be putting most of your your resources towards actually doing the work especially given that they are like you said mostly volunteer hours going into those kinds of of organizations then you need to kind of make the most of what time you've got i've been pitching for ages like ota just needs to do like a monthly podcast or something like here (laughs) aota has one now i've heard they used to have one way back like way back when i started this and it was kind of dormant back then like it must have been 2013 2014 there used to be one but yeah and i was like that's probably where i got the idea from i'm like i don't know what i'll do it for them like i don't care like (laughs) Well, that's what they had. AOTA, right, had a capstone student who wanted to come in and do a capstone with AOTA on podcasting, and it ended up being really successful, and he's made himself a nice little contract out of that now. So talk about making your own doors and making them open. He made a door for himself, and now he's he's got a job. Yeah, because I think what you were saying before, too, is with regards to being a member to those sorts of things, like that's how they generally swing some influence as well. Like if uh, like AOTA or OTA went to the government to petition something and went, here, we're representing these seven people, the government would be like, uh, okay, see you later. Oh, I always hated that. So when we when I worked with the Missouri OT Association, our membership was really low at the time. We had, I think, like 300 members. I think like 150 or to 200 of them were students. And there were over 6,000 practitioners in the state. So that's a very small percentage. And so when we go and meet with legislators, we tell them that we represent occupational therapy practitioners in the state of Missouri and our students and gave them their whole pitch. And we always hated getting the question, how many members do you have? And around 300. <laughs> and how many practitioners are there? 6,000. Okay. Thank you. Mm. And so it didn't really give us a lot of, you know, as leveraging powers we might have liked to have had. Yeah. And I just think about that. If we had had all 6,000 practitioners pay 75 bucks a year to be a member, man, gosh knows what, what we would be able to be able to do with all that. We could have hired someone to help us. <laughs> well, we see that like with different unions as well. Like I know in Australia, like the nurses union is really, really strong and it's, partly probably due to some of the help that they've hired to help them with the different things that they're advocating for. But in a large, uh, like a large percentage of that is the fact that they've just got such a high percentage of members. Mm-hmm. I remember in my very, it was my very first job out of uni and the university, it was like in a big city and parking was always an issue. So there used to be this dirt, block of land across the road from the hospital that originally was is privately owned but the dude who owned it used to charge people like five bucks a day to park there and then i can't remember he, i think he sold it and the people that uh who bought it refused to let health start they weren't doing anything with it i think they were just going to sit on it but refused to let health services use it even though it was literally like right across the road from the hospital and the nurses union essentially made the health district buy the land then the hospital owned it and could be used for whatever they wanted that was the first time i was like man these guys have some have some pull and it's a lot of it's just due to the numbers and like obviously we don't have as many numbers as a profession like nursing but i don't think it's necessarily total numbers it'd be more percentage of the profession because like my example before, if there's 100,000 OTs and you've got seven members, then obviously what you're representing isn't 
represented by the majority of the profession. Whereas if you've got 6,000 OTs and you've got 5,500 members, there's a good chance that obviously they're seeing in you something that they feel is important and you're representing what they want. Well, and if you look at it from a business marketing perspective, right, as someone who owns a small business, you have to think about who is paying you, right? And so when, you know, I've heard complaints before that, you know, AOTA focused too much on skilled nursing facility, focused too much on educators and kind of left out private practice or left out these folks. But then when you talk to those other groups, they say, well, how many of you are members? And none of them were members. I'm like, okay, well, if you have educators and students who are your primary people who are your members, are you going to put out more content for the people who are already paying you? Or are you going to put out more content for the people who aren't in the hopes that maybe they will? And like, I don't know, you know, I'm more likely to respond and to take someone's thought into consideration if they're already a part of my membership program or have bought my course versus someone who's never going to buy from me in the first place. Like, why would I listen to that person? Now, AOTA is obviously different. Like, they are more profession-driven. You know, they think more about what's most important for the profession versus any individual member. But it's kind of the same thing, right? There's that value in numbers. And so if we had like APTA, right, or the American Physical Therapy Association, they are so private practice focused because so many of their members are in private practice. And so they are responsive to the demands and the interests of one of the largest group of members. So if you kind of, if you want something to get done, the best way to do it is to have a seat at the table. And in case of an association, the best way to have a seat at the table is to be a member and volunteer. Get involved. Then you're more likely to be heard. Yeah. Yeah. 100%. Speaking of your private practice, how did Amplify OT come about and what does it do? So Amplify OT, I started it in 2020 as a website and a blog, mostly It was twofold. One, I wanted to get information out there because I found it really frustrating trying to find information that was really specific to occupational therapy and to my specific needs. Because I think AOTA did a fantastic job putting out information, but it sometimes misses that clinical connection. Um, And to be fair, a lot of that is because many of the people who are writing some of the briefs are not always practitioners. They're lawyers or lobbyists. And so it's hard to kind of make that clinical connection. And so I wanted to produce information so that I could help other people get the information that I had been looking for and save them some time so they could better advocate for themselves and for the profession. And then the other part of it is that I wanted a place to write under my own name in the hopes that I could use it as kind of a portfolio to get a job in policy. Now, there is a few life things that kind of came up and some opportunities that came up that ended up allowing me to actually pursue growing Amplify OT full time instead of working for a corporation or a home health agency. So I'm fully non-clinical. I work fully from home. I work fully for myself doing contracting. So I do various things. I do a myriad of contracts with different groups, providing different resources. And then through Amplify OT itself, like me, I have a membership program that I launched in January. So what I do through that is I provide courses and educational materials on Medicare, which is our federal health insurance program that really influences a lot of reimbursement. So I deal specifically with adults. I don't do anything about pediatric policy because it's very different the way that pediatric services are reimbursed here. But that's my primary, I guess, service that I offer is just trying to, I say that I make Medicare easy. So I really try and take Medicare and reimbursement and tie it to clinical practice of 
this is the payment, this is how it works, this is how it impacts you. Now, this is how you can utilize this information to advocate for yourself and for your services, because many things here with our healthcare system are heavily driven by, does it get paid for? And so the first thing that they're going to ask, I want to do X, Y, and Z. Okay, well, how do you get paid for that? And if you don't know, then you're probably not going to be able to do it. So if you know how the system works, you can better help your patients and also hopefully help you make the money that you deserve to make and protect, you know, your scope of practice and all those sorts of things. And of course, you know, throw the cookie on top is that you hopefully won't violate any laws and go to jail and owe penalties. <laughs> oh, I like how that's the little that's the little cherry on top is hey, by the way, you might not go to jail. Yay. If the rest of it didn't motivate you, hopefully, uh, hopefully that will. That if you are billing for things incorrectly, you are violating federal law. I got dark real quick. You're a political Sherpa helping people navigate. Yeah, the, I'm fun to hang system. out with, right? <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of, that's what I do is I just, I really like reading those horribly long documents and trying to translate them in a way that makes sense to other people. And it's also a lot about kind of just connecting people with the resources that are out there because I see a lot of AOTA should do this or Medicare should do this without really realizing that actually it's already been done and here's the resource for it. So that's a lot of what I do. And I try and do that through my articles or through my podcasts and through my courses is I always provide links to Medicare documents and to resources from AOTA or other resources that I found that I feel are reliable. Because oftentimes the resource that you're looking for already exists. It's just maybe difficult to find or you're not using the right keywords in order to find it. So Googling things is a skill and it's something that I happen to be good at after doing this for a long time. I feel like OT should be better at searching, especially given they've just completed a course where they have to navigate like scholarly databases and that sort of stuff. So <laughs> you'd think searching would be something that we are, we're half decent at, but. And I think it's a lot of, you know, knowing, knowing the terms, like most people don't know that when they're looking for home health reimbursement, that the right terms to probably look for are CMS, home health, PPS. It's a prospective payment system. Like if you don't know that, then if you just type in home health payment, you're just going to get a ton of blogs from variety of resources that may or may not have accurate information and may or may not be linked to actual resources versus if you know kind of what you're looking for, it's a little bit easier. See, this is why you need your political Sherpa to guide you through this maze of language and acronyms. So we connected on Instagram uh, a few weeks ago when there was a little bit of controversial ideas being thrown around that was kind of polarizing a few people when a a certain movement was uh, I'll call them accusations throwing accusations around that the the profession wasn't doing what it should be doing or what it potentially could be doing and was seemingly laying the blame for that solely at AOTA's fault. Since then, I've had it because I'd never heard of them at the time. So I've been off social media for like, personally off for like eight months <laughs> by that stage. Good for you. And even on the, the occupied stuff, I'd probably been off for like six weeks. And that was, I think I'd been on for 20 minutes. I'd come back on for like 20 minutes and this just exploded in my face. And I had people messaging me and I'm like, oh my God, what the hell's going on? Welcome back to the cesspool of social media. Yeah, wow. 
And yeah, and we we got chatting about a few of the the ideas being thrown around, and and you put out a, a very educational video around it, and uh, we were like, well, let's get together and have a chinwag about it, and see see what we can navigate, see if we can sherpa our way through some of these issues. Yeah, because there's always two sides to a story, right? And I think that's always the difficult part about social media, which has been shown time and time again that polarizing rhetoric and fear-based rhetoric spreads like wildfire. And I think that was capitalized on to a certain extent to get more views, get more likes, people share it. And if someone is so confident in their convictions, and then it makes other people feel like they should also feel that way, which not saying that, you know, that's not something that multiple people utilize, right? You know, I try and shorten my clips to make them more engaging. You know, we all use tactics to get more views on social media. But, you know, a a scary message spreads a lot more quickly than a positive message. Yeah, definitely. And after the last few years in the news, I'm pretty sure we've all seen examples of that happening. A hundred percent. So... I'll put this out there to the public to start with. So we're talking about the Fullscape OT movement. Mm-hmm. But just to be 100% clear, we're not attacking the people who are running it or anyone that supports it. We are just having a look at some of the ideas being put forward and I guess how it's being marketed. And uh, on my part anyway, it'll be very, I'll be giving my opinion on it. Which again, if our opinions differ, that's not anything to do. It's no reflection on the anyone else other than these are our opinions. So get that out there nice and clear so that people know where we stand with regards to it. So where to start? I guess probably one of the biggest thing, there's two main issues that I've seen people have sent me, that I've seen, that I've had discussions with people about with regards to this particular movement that is essentially being, it's not even being promoted, but we're just being told that we're not practicing to our full scope if we're utilizing, say, an occupation-based model and that we should be more biomechanical or essentially, well, I'm going to call it as it is because history dictates it's a reductionist model. Mm -hmm. And the other is that that's all AOTA's fault. Because apparently they're, I, I don't know the exact rhetoric that was used, but it was essentially they're promoting the use or promoting the movement away from any kind of biomechanical setting. What's being called the traditional medical model, yeah. which generally refers to hospital, any kind of institution. So inpatient rehab, skilled nursing facilities. Home health is sometimes included in what we call the medical model, but it could also be a community-based service because it isn't community. So there's been a lot of rhetoric around that. There is some implications that AOTA is moving away from the medical model or is trying to no longer support occupational therapy services in the medical model. And there's been some, in my opinion, shoestring theories around why this is the case. But if you look a little bit deeper or do some of your own investigation, you'd see that actually a large majority of the resources that are available to practitioners have to do with the medical model because a good chunk of people work in the medical. I worked in two medical model settings because if you work with adults, 
chances are you work in one of those traditional, you know, quote unquote, traditional medical model settings and deals with Medicare. And so, I mean, we can get into all of that, but yeah, that's, that's kind of the gist of it is some implications that we're being failed as a profession by our national association and that there's, in my opinion, is being presented as a conspiracy theory to move away from the traditional medical model. There's been accusations that it's possible that OT will no longer have a presence within five years within the medical model and some other rather inflammatory language that I think is categorically false. It seems to be to, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you're probably much more well-read on this, that it's AOTA pushing schools to stop teaching it. That's been some of the implications. There's been some blame on ACOAT or some blame on, so right within the U.S. with OT, we have ACOAT, which is does accreditations for our occupational therapy programs, NBCOT, which is the National Board Certification of Occupational Therapy, which runs our national licensing exam. So if you want to practice in the U.S., you have to take the NBCOT. And then AOTA, which is our professional association that most people are familiar with, which does a lot of um, resources and lobbying and advocacy on behalf of the profession. And there's been some conflation around that. There's been a lot of pressure, I guess, from these organizations to make schools no longer teach. Um, There's been accusations that schools are no longer teaching anatomy, or they're no longer teaching physiology or biomechanics. But to be clear, and I put out a very short reel about this, AOTA has no influence over what courses or programming is going on within certain institutions. They're certainly not calling up universities and saying, don't teach this anymore. If anyone were to have any kind of influence on that, it could potentially be ACOAT, but ACOAT just writes the standards. And as long as programs are meeting those standards, which they are relatively vague, which is purposeful, but they do have, you know, specific language, there's certain language to kind of show what kind of level of competency you have to have in certain categories. Uh, what's, I can't, it yeah. begins with a B. I should know this. Working Bloom's taxonomy. Yes. That's it. Bloom's taxonomy. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, ACOAT can set standards, but as long as universities are meeting those standards, they can't tell them that you have to have an entire class on anatomy or you have to have an entire class on physiology then if we if every single university was exactly the same, offered the exact same programming, how would students pick between certain universities? And then also, where would there be room for innovation in education? Like, I can tell you, I only graduated five years ago, and my program looks very different from when I attended there five years ago, because they've changed things, they've taken feedback, they've learned, they've tried new methods. I mean, education, just like anything else, is always an experiment in trying to figure out what fits the needs best. And frankly, every generation and every cohort is different. You know, what my generation needed of going through a program is very different from the generation that's going through you know, OT programs now. When I went to OT school, there was no chat GPT. There was no... (laughs) And I'm sure if you went to school 10, 15 years ago, things have changed a lot. And so I don't think it's fair to say that because things are changing, that automatically means that everything is going poorly. I think there's always more to the story and it's really hard to convey a full story through a minute and a half for a 30 second video. I would almost go one step further and say if it's not changing, then they're doing something wrong because the health landscape's changing, population's changing. The course, the program should be 
updating and changing to keep up with with that. Also to go... Okay, I'm going to air this out. I've never said this on the podcast, but I'm going to. I probably have, I don't know. I was having a conversation the other day with someone, and I've one of my pet peeves is people who don't acknowledge the, the bigger picture. And the context of that conversation was... The example used was OTs in the States thinking that this is how OT is because it's how it is where they are. And I'm like, there's a whole world out there. There's more OTs in the rest of the world than there is in the States. And we don't all do it that way. And looking at that on the, the, I guess, the broader context on terms of education is all these courses are Wofford accredited. And a lot of that guidance on course content, etc., and course design sometimes comes from WFOT. It's got nothing to do with AOTA, even more far removed from AOTA. But when we look at the model that WFOT uses, I, I kind of a, a liken it to when we think about evidence-based practice, where evidence-based practice isn't just what's in a book. It's that on top of experience, on top of mm-hmm. all that sort of stuff. And the same thing happens for course design from a WFOT point of view. It's the program sort of, I guess, core content and coupled with local needs and local resources from wherever that course is. So obviously a course in Australia or even even within Australia, a course where I am in sort of rural regional Australia is very different and should be very different from a course in a metropolitan city because yes we have that same core philosophy that we're being taught ot's in general all have that same core philosophy this is why by the way and that's coupled with the needs of the 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 local area so like my course has a a strong flavor of rural and remote health ruralist generalists working with first australians or indigenous populations because that is the where I live. That's that's the big right. hot button things of where I live. So that's incorporated on top of the general OT philosophy that everyone teaches. It's tailored for working in an area that like where my university is situated geographically, socioeconomically, all of that. So each course should be different. And that's like burnt into the actual model coming from WFOT. And I think that's kind of something that you know, Australia can even relate to with the United States, right, is that the area of land is so big. So what something looks like in New York City is very different from rural Arkansas, (laughs) is very different from LA, which is even different from Idaho or Montana. You know, I mean, even if you just looked at the landscape, it's vastly different from swamps to deserts, right? And so that's a, a whole idea of cultural competency, like what OT looked like in New York City and even the personalities and the way we were expected to practice when I was there in school was very different from when I returned to Kansas City, where we have, even though it was still urban, there was a lot of farmers. And I had to kind of learn, you know, on my clinical competency or my uh, cultural competency of what what were the farmer's needs that was very different from when I was learning as an OT in New York City, where you aren't seeing a lot of farmers in Manhattan, you know, so it's kind of all part of that adjusting and learning. And I think there's other, you know, if we're talking about pet peeves, I think two of mine would be assuming that because 
we're looking at something else means that we're no longer doing that we're working against the other thing. And I think that's been where there's been kind of this idea that the medical model is in conflict with community based services. And you talk about that bigger picture. Well, the reason why you see so much advocacy in the U.S., at least around community based services, is because a lot of health insurance programs, including Medicare, are taking a much more informed look at community based services because they recognize that by providing primary care and providing community services, it helps keep people out of hospitals and helps keep people out of institutions. And so they're more interested in providing funding in those areas. So just because we're providing advocacy to help make sure that we are part of that funding doesn't mean that we're no longer supporting the rest of the continuum of care. And I think it's easy to forget that when we think in our silos of like, well, I practice in SNF or I practice in inpatient rehab and this is what therapy looks like to me. It looks very different from what it looks like in home health or what it looks like when you're working in an outpatient mental health program, right? And so just because we're looking at one doesn't mean that we're not supporting the other. And I think that's really important to to recognize. So you know, we're not trying to split the baby. We can focus on both. And don't you want advocacy to be happening in these expanding areas? Because if it doesn't, when those new payment models come out and we're not included as part of that payment, people are going to be pretty upset. Yeah, 100%. Are you ready to take your occupational therapy practice to the next level? Then look no further than the Amplify OT membership. You heard that right. Amplify OT has its very own membership program. This membership is designed to help occupational therapy practitioners just like you stay informed about the latest developments in Medicare and advocacy. You will have exclusive access to resources, webinars, the Mastering OT Policy and Medicare course, Q&A sessions, plus the ability to DM me your questions and get answers fast. But of course, that is not all. As a member, you'll be part of a community of like-minded occupational therapy practitioners who share their expertise and offer support. So by joining the Amplify OT membership, you'll be able to stay up to date on the latest Medicare regulations and guidelines, learn how to advocate for your patients and your profession, connect with other OT practitioners and students to share your knowledge, and you'll have access to those exclusive resources and webinars so you can reach your full potential as an OT provider. So don't miss out on this opportunity to take your practice to the next level. Sign up for the Amplify OT membership today by going to the link in the show notes or amplifyot.com forward slash membership. Don't forget to stay informed and be the change that you want to see in our healthcare system. Today's episode is proudly sponsored by MedBridge, your go-to resource for advancing your occupational therapy career and, of course, getting those necessary CEUs. If you are passionate about staying at the forefront of our field and enhancing your skills, MedBridge is a comprehensive solution. With the MedBridge subscription, you gain access to an extensive library of high-quality live and recorded courses led by industry experts. So stay up to date with the latest advancements in occupational therapy, explore evidence-based practice, and enhance your clinical skills. One reason that I really like and recommend MedBridge is because they have both intervention-based courses and policy and reimbursement-based courses, and that is a rare find in a CEU company. But here's the best part for our OT Amplifiers community. If you use the promo code AMPLIFYOT at checkout, you'll unlock an exclusive 40% discount on your MedBridge subscription. Yes, you heard that right, 40% 
off with the code AmplifyOT. That's A-M-P-L-I-F-Y-O-T. This is a fantastic opportunity to save some money, elevate your practice, and support Amplify OT. So don't miss out on this chance to supercharge your professional development and head over to MedBridge.com, use the promo code AmplifyOT, and enjoy the benefits of MedBridge while also supporting AmplifyOT and all the free resources that we produce here, like this podcast. So again, head to MedBridge.com, use the code AmplifyOT at checkout, and we also have the link for you in the show notes. This all-or-nothing approach, I've never, in any example of anything really in my life, it's never works. No. <laughs> It does come across as very combative, and this isn't just in this instance, this is in any instance in life. If you're completely bullheaded about, this is their opinion, but mine is different, and mine is the way, and everyone needs to see it my way, without sort of finding that middle ground, then yeah, you're going to come across as aggressive, and you're going to, you could say it as nice as pie, it's still going to come across as aggressive. A hundred percent. And it's, you're never going to make any progress (laughs) and i think when we're talking about being culturally competent thinking that bigger picture there's been a lot of rhetoric around fixing people or making them better and you know well just because someone's older doesn't mean they need special treatment which i agree for some people is the case but not for all older adults and if we aren't kind of providing special treatment are we really providing patient-centered care if we're kind of this idea of treating everyone the same and this idea of fixing people or making them better to name it is frankly ableism in my opinion this idea that people are something that needs to be fixed and that we're the thing that is going to fix them and so i think there's a really i think there's a big problem with using that language and frankly it's very prominent in the united states because we place such an emphasis on independence and if you aren't independent then then you're not you're not productive to society I think that's a big part of that clinical competency, right? That like I recognized for some of my patients in acute care when I was working with them, their goal wasn't to be able to dress themselves. In fact, for some cultures, their goal was to be able to have their family be able to take care of them. So instead of focusing on the patient and making them try to do something that they didn't care about, and once they go home, they're not going to do about, I put a lot more emphasis on working with the family of like, okay, here's what we've got going on. Here's the safest way to do what you want to do. And there's nothing wrong with that, you know, or respecting people and where they're comfortable at. Like I always told people who had, you know, different bodies or different functions that like, I don't care how you transfer as long as it's safe. And if you're doing something that's unsafe, then let's have a conversation with it about how we can make it safer. But it's your body. Hmm. It's your function. And you know it best far better than me as someone who, if you can't see me, I'm an able bodied individual. It's not my place to tell someone that you need to be fixed because what you're doing wrong. Now, if you're doing something horribly unsafe, like I had a patient who had an amputee and he was using two milk crates stacked on top of each other in in his shower as a shower chair, we had to have a conversation around that. That's that's not safe. No, that, that, yeah. I could see that going pear-shaped, yeah. Yeah, exactly. It, It could go downhill very quickly. And so that's where we have a conversation. But again that's different from telling someone that you need to be fixed. And I think there's, I think that's a way that we see in certain settings, like inpatient rehab and outpatient therapy tend to be much more focused on biomechanical and this kind of rehab, or like you're saying, reductionist model of 
fixing people because mm. that's really how those settings are set up. Like in inpatient rehab, in order to go there for the U.S., you have to be able to tolerate a minimum of three hours of therapy a day. So the entire like reimbursement program in inpatient rehab is with the idea of making you better. So you, in order to believe that you are making someone better, you have to automatically believe that there is something wrong with them, which is very different from the perspective of home health or, you know, so what you're able to do in inpatient rehab is really different from what I could do in home health. Like in inpatient rehab, you've got probably an hour and a half a day with that patient. You can do all sorts of fantastic interventions and exercise, and you kind of have to use some more biomechanical interventions because you have the time and you have the ability to provide those repetitions that people need for more biomechanical interventions to be successful. But when I'm in home health, and I have 30 minutes with the patient, and maybe I see them four times before they discharge, I'm not going to do a lot of biomechanical interventions because I'm not going to be there to follow through. And let's be honest, every time you prescribe that person a home exercise program, they maybe do it twice before it falls into the bottom of papers underneath all their magazines. So I focus a lot more on occupation and what's meaningful to that patient. And if what's meaningful to that patient is exercise, then I'm going to help them with some exercises because that's what's meaningful to them and that's being patient-centered. And I think that's where people have kind of liked this idea, the, the rhetoric, of the terminology full-scope OT, because it is this idea, people think that it's this idea of being patient-centered, right? And this is where I think sometimes the language of full-scope is a bit contradictory sometimes to the messaging mm. that's actually behind the concept of being full scope. Cause like I personally am not opposed to practitioners utilizing the full scope of their capabilities, utilizing every tool in their toolkit. Exactly. That's, yeah. that's the whole point. So if you are only doing occupation based interventions and saying absolutely no exercise, I would say that that is just as wrong as saying all exercise, no occupation based. hundred percent. And so I think that's where sometimes there's this conflict and where we need to do some research of what really is the messaging behind certain movements. And that goes for this movement, as well as any other movement that, you know, whether it be a movement put on by the Democratic or Republican Party or whoever, you always have to kind of look into what is the actual messaging behind that? And does that align with the name of the program? Yeah, yeah. No, and I think that's where a lot of the people I've had discussions with seem to... I think that's where the, there seems to be a disconnect because a lot of people are like, yeah, full scope OT, yep, totally behind that. And on paper, if that's all the information you're presented with, then yeah, 100%. It sounds great. Yeah. But the issue uh, and the I guess the controversial bit is when you yeah, delve into what's actually being put forward and why it's being put forward becomes an issue. Like there is a push within the movement around uh, a swing back towards the, the medical model side of things. So one of their big issues is in like more specifically is schools, like you mentioned before, not teaching anatomy, not teaching physiology, etc. I just found this quote. So this is from the WFOT minimum standards for education of OTs. And it's talking about the, like I spoke about before, the model that combines foundational knowledge with more local and contextual knowledge. And this is part of, so the foundational knowledge refers to the expectations of content knowledge with which students enter the profession programs such as human anatomy, neurology, sociology, and other humanities and sciences. It combines everything. Yeah. So it's talking about 
social knowledge. And I think this is where one of the biggest issues that I've got is in a lot of the documentation from this movement, they keep referring to hard sciences and nothing shits me more than that. Mainly because no one knows exactly what that is. It's actually, it's a colloquial term anyway, mainly meant to be used for things like math, physics, where there's sort of what's seen as more definite answers to questions and that kind of thing. hate to break it to you, but the majority of the medical model doesn't fall under that anyway. But also, that's not where this profession was birthed, for one. Mm-hmm. We're missing out on what makes this profession rich and valuable if we ignore everything that isn't quote-unquote, a hard science, because there's nothing then that differentiates us from any other profession, for one, which is our pet peeve of mine, because I'm like, if we want one of the reasons, and this is like a whole other podcast episode probably, but one of the reasons why no one knows what we do, one of the reasons why we find it so difficult to describe ourselves, one of the reasons why... Some people are advocating to change the name of the profession is because we don't talk about it. We don't talk about it because we don't have this unifying identity. And one of the reasons we don't have that is for all the reasons that I've just described, because we're being pulled in every direction and no one's heading up this identity direction for the profession. And I think that's the problem. Like I've, I've said too that, you know, we've heard complaints that no one understands what OT is. Well, personally, I think that there's a crisis of understanding of what OT is within our own profession. And I think part of that is because what OT is looks different in every single setting. And that's where, you know, I've developed my own pitch of what occupational therapy is. If someone, you know, off the street asks me and I say that, you know, we tend to work in medical settings, but really we're experts in problem solving and task analysis that involve multiple different factors, like the person, the environment, mental health, you know, all sorts of things, which is really different. And I think so there, there's a crisis of understanding of what OT is, because if I pull aside any OT and say, why should you get paid? Why are your services valuable? What, why should I spend money on you versus someone else, like in our healthcare system, an aide who tends to cost a third of the price of an occupational therapist, why should I pay the OT over the aide? And if you can't answer that question with something that shows me why you are valuable, then that's a problem. And I think we have that problem. You know, that's something that I try and help fix with some of the information is that's part of, right, that understanding the full story. It's not just the patient in front of you. It's all of their other contexts and their factors that that influence them. Because even if I have a patient where I understand biomechanically that the difficulty is the fact that, you know, they're too weak to be able to stand, but that person has crippling anxiety that prevents them from being able to even come close to sitting up on the edge of the bed, that is no longer a biomechanical problem. That is a mental health problem. And that's something that we're working on addressing with that particular patient. And so just looking through things like what you said, like what people tend to call like the hard sciences, which has also been used a way to kind of demean what people call the soft sciences, which often involves mental health and psychology, Like, I can tell you that in acute care, I no longer know all the muscle attachments. I don't know all the things about the brachial plexus because I didn't need it. You know, I could look things up if I really needed something very particular, but I didn't need to know the attachment of the long head of the biceps 
to help me understand that this person is having difficulty brushing their teeth or caring for their grandkids. I didn't need a manual muscle test to tell me that this person was having a difficulty standing up from the bed because I was able to just observe them having difficulty standing up from the bed. And if you can't kind of understand all the things that are going on in your head at the same time and kind of articulating that in a way that makes sense to people, that's where I think we have this crisis of faith and this crisis of understanding of what is OT. And it's easier to blame someone else for our problems than to kind of take that reflective look of, well, what do I understand occupational therapy is? And do I really know what it means? And do I really know how to communicate that to someone else? Because no one's going to buy your product if you can't explain it to them. And in this case, the product is occupational therapy. I would even go as far to say, and some people may disagree with me, that's fine, but I would go as far to say that being able to assess and analyze rote learnt anatomy and physiology knowledge is a thousand times easier than being able to understand it on a depth of why people do what they do and what's important to them. Absolutely. I mean, I can tell you, I got a C plus in my neuroanatomy class, but I would consider myself a good therapist and my patients seem to do well, you know, and I had to look things up and I will admit that sometimes working with neuro patients was a weak point of mine, but that's also, to be fair, I was on the orthopedic unit and the cardiac unit most often. So I didn't have to know as much about the neuro patients because I didn't work with them as often. And that's not, that's also where continuing education comes into play. Right. And I think that's another, we're going to go on to another soapbox or another pet peeve is this idea that school is supposed to teach you everything that you ever need to know to be an occupational therapist. Cause first of all, no one remembers everything they learned in school because it's like drinking out of a fire hose, you know, of information, right? Like you are pounded with hours of information every day and you're just trying to survive. Yep. Like I could not tell you what the first lecture was in my program. I've got no idea. I probably didn't wake up from like a learning coma until like four months into school. And so this idea that OT programs are supposed to prepare you for everything that you might ever encounter, I think is frankly ridiculous and unrealistic. And if that's what you want, then you're going to have to go to school for 10 years and you're going to have to pay for that. And nobody's going to do that. So the whole idea is to teach you how to learn and how to think like an occupational therapist. What makes occupational therapy practitioners different is the way that we think, not necessarily what we do. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important to, you know, when people say OTs or ADLs, no, OTs are so much more than ADLs. And so I'm not threatened by the fact that physical therapists want to suddenly do ADLs because to me, what makes OT unique isn't the fact that I do ADLs. It's the way that I think about problems yep. that involve mental health context factors that I can tell you isn't always in physical therapy education. So I'm not afraid of my job going away because I understand what makes me different. I think what you touched on before with regards to mental health too like I, I did really well in those anatomy physiology subjects. I got A's in those subjects and I probably still don't remember any of it because I haven't needed it in my practice area. It's not an area that like I've worked in mental health my whole career. And like you said, I know a lot more about those different muscle groups and areas from my powerlifting coaching than I do from my work because I've never used it in my, in my working <laughs> career. Yeah. The neuro stuff I've used a bit, but a lot of the the practice area stuff is more sociology and social connections because that is a massive part of mental health practice. One of my biggest 
gripes with the the movement when it was initially presented to me was the fact that they were presenting OT as this one blanket idea. This is what all OTs think. This is what all OTs should do, including mental health. And as someone who has worked my whole career in mental health and is very passionate about it, that's just wrong. <laughs> it's not true. I, yeah. There's no way I could take a more medical model approach. Because one of the, one I remember, I think it was in a video from, from one of the founding people, founders, whatever you want to call them, people involved with the movement was talking about there not being, the medical approach had been completely taken out of mental health. And I'm like, what approach? Like, what would you do? Right. Someone's diagnosed with schizophrenia. Are you going to like cut out the diseased bit? Or like, what, what exactly <laughs> does that look like? Because that's not how this practice area works. And from what I could see in the few people that I was able to find that were sort of driving this movement, none of them were working or had worked in mental health, which concerned me that they're speaking on behalf of mental health practice, not even just OT, but mental health practice with, you know, maybe a placement experience, if that. Right. Because the other thing is, like we were talking about before with courses and content being tailored to the environment is mental health OTs are much more common in Australia than they are in the States. I've mm -hmm. spoken to multiple people in the States and there's a whole lot of like political issues with regards to why there aren't that many anymore. Whereas in Australia, it's common. I would say it would be probably at least a quarter of the profession work in mental health. I think the last stats I looked at, which granted was a very long time ago in the States, I think it was about 4%. Like it's a massive difference in how many people work in mental health just between these two countries, let alone every other country. Right. So I'm like, if you're going to speak on behalf of someone, at least have some representation, which ironically comes back to a whole lot of things that we've been talking about with regards to politics and representation. Because you can't, like I can't speak on behalf of someone who has schizophrenia or like the population of people who have schizophrenia. I don't have it. I've never experienced it. I have my professional understanding of some of the difficulties that the individuals that I've worked with have been through with that condition. And also some people will have heard there's been an episode. I spoke to uh, Rachel about her experience. Obviously I've never worked with her, but I have that professional understanding and that's it. I don't have a lived experience. I don't have uh, like a family member or a friend with that condition who I can draw on that. So I like me speaking on that population's behalf would be completely inappropriate. Right. I could speak on like my experience with like depression, but even then that's just my experience. I'm not going to go out and speak on behalf of the population. I feel much more comfortable speaking out with regards, and again, I still preface it, did it in this episode, preface it that it's my opinion with regards to occupational therapy, because one, I've been doing that for a very long time. I've networked with a lot of people. I do this podcast where I talk to people from all over the world. I feel I have a, a relatively broad understanding of what's happening in the profession, who's doing what, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. But even then, it's still just my opinion. I'm not representing OT as a whole. I'm not saying OT as a whole profession should completely change directions and go down this other route because that would be inappropriate of me <laughs> to be doing. A change like that, when you're looking at representation, 
if you're specifically looking at representation within a country, yep, fair enough, then you still need to have more than two members, unfortunately. Yeah. Otherwise, again, inappropriate. And your talk about, you know, mental health, I think there's a specific incidence that I'd like to respond to where Rhiannon, uh, Chris, what's her yep. last name? Rhiannon. Yeah, Chris. You know, she produced a really fantastic documentary about occupational therapy. In one of her posts, there was a quote from Carolyn Baum, who's also a prominent person in occupational therapy, where she said, you know, this is going to be butchering the quote, but the gist of it was, it's not about the diagnosis that brings people to occupational therapy. It's the disruption and perform or the disruption in occupation um, that brings people to occupational therapy. And that comment was shared and it was implied that thinking that way was lazy and that that was an excuse for practitioners to not do their job or an excuse for practitioners to do a poor job. And to me, that made it very evident that the person had not worked in mental health because I remember the Columbia was required to do a level two in mental health. So I spent 12 weeks in a, uh, a temporary home for people with chronic mental illness. And so I remember having a really hard time when I first got there because their medical charts were like two pages. And these are people who are like 50 years old, right? Mm-hmm. They're individuals with chronic mental health diagnoses and a, a history of homelessness. And so I had a really hard time because too, I kind of sometimes, you know, I grew up in the Midwest and I kind of been raised with the mentality of, well, if you're not doing well, then you just do better. You just try harder and you get better, right? And I had a really hard time working in mental health because I didn't have diagnoses. I didn't have medical histories. Shoot, half these people, we didn't even know what their actual birth date was. We had guesses, but every time you asked that person, they gave you a different month and a different year. I mean, honestly, who knows if even the name that they gave us was 100% the name that they were born with. And that's what happens when you're working in some of these populations. And I remember going to my supervisor and saying, what do I do? I don't even know what the diagnosis is. So how am I supposed to work with these patients and, you know, with these folks? And she said, well, it's not about that. You know, even if you have the diagnosis, no two people who have schizophrenia have the exact same presentation. And I think that's the same thing, right? Like no two patients with a total knee replacement are exactly the same. And so while understanding a diagnosis is part of it, it's not the end all be all. And if you only respond to that person's diagnosis, then you're really, again, not providing patient-centered care, which is evidence-based, which is the most appropriate type of care, and also what's reimbursed, mind you. You know, there's a reason why someone's diagnosis isn't what qualifies them for occupational therapy services. It's about, the really, the disruption in function, the disruption in occupation. So I really had a strong reaction to this idea that by not understanding the diagnosis, that that is somehow being lazy, which really I find just offensive to say about, to imply about someone. But, you know, I I think, again, it's it's evident that you haven't worked in some of these other settings where really, and she was right when I, when I spoke with my supervisor, she was hundred percent right that the, that the diagnosis didn't matter. Once I started really responding and thinking about them as individuals and what they were having trouble with as an individual and what their specific symptoms were and their specific presentation was, I was able to be a lot more effective and frankly, a lot less frustrated when working with them, and I was able to have better outcomes because I wasn't so wrapped up in this medical idea of, well, if they have this diagnosis, then they present this way, and this is how I treat them, 
because frankly, it didn't matter. Like I find that with students, right? I, I always find it funny when I have a student who is a level one or level two and they come with me and they're like, oh, I can't wait to see this next patient. I'm like, why? Like, well, they have congestive heart failure and I've never seen a person with congestive heart failure. I'm like, oh, you have. I'm like, but they don't look at, they're maybe a little swollen, mm. like they might be a little puffy, but it's not like, I might talk to them more about sodium intake or something than someone else who doesn't have CHF, but it's not really about the diagnosis. We're going to go in there and ask them about, frankly, their disruptions and occupations, what's meaningful to them, what they want to get back to. The diagnosis is part of it, but that's not the end all be all. That's not what I'm only focused on. And I think when you look at other settings, especially like outpatient settings, it is often a lot more focused on the diagnosis because it tends to be a lot more orthopedic in nature, Mm -hmm. which tends to be kind of your simpler population at times. If you have an elbow injury, it's easier to focus just on the elbow. And when you're focusing in some of these others, like mental health or even acute care, you're focusing kind of on, you know, the patients who have an alphabet soup of diagnoses and you can't pinpoint that the experience they're having is due to this Mm -hmm. diagnosis. It's about the disruption in occupation. And I guess someone who's, you know, to, to feed off that, he's sort of calling that concept the lazy way of working, obviously has very little to no understanding of the concept of occupational justice, which that's a kind of a core part of it is occupational disruption, occupational deprivation and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. But also that's not a concept that's like exclusive to mental health. That's not a concept that should be foreign to any OTs, I would hope. Uh, to me, that's that not focusing on that to me is the the easy bit. Like I said before, like if you're no person with a knee injury is like a knee replacement is is going to be the same. Well, okay, medically, they might be relatively similar, but mm-hmm. how that impacts that person is the thing that's going to really differ, and how it's going to affect their life, and how it's going to the types of things it might stop them from doing short term, long term, mid term. That's where the difference is. And you can't treat people all the same. That's why I've said multiple times, like, I hate the word function in, in occupational <laughs> therapy is because function is, it's, it's, a, it's a term derived from math and physics that if you put the same input in one end, you're going to get the same output at the other end. And that's not how people work. Like, you can give two people a knee replacement, they're going to recover at different speeds. It's going to impact them different. What you do with them from a treatment point of view is going to be different. People aren't functions. We don't operate like that. We operate on a more social scale, weirdly enough. Sociology is a lot (laughs) bigger part of OT than we want to believe, apparently, or that we're, we're willing to acknowledge. And that frustrates me so badly. And I completely relate to to what you're saying with regards to diagnosis. And I've said it on here a few times, like, I can 100% do my job really successfully without knowing what a person's diagnosis is because I'm not working with a diagnosis. I mean, that's how I was in home health. All I got was like their name, their address, and like what they were most recently hospitalized for. Yeah. I didn't get anything else. Yeah. <laughs> and I was expected to figure it out. Not yeah. saying that's always the best way to practice. It would have been nice to know if they had recent surgeries. Yeah, yeah. But... There's more to people than what's on their medical record. Well, that's the other thing is I was talking to my students recently, like only in the last couple of weeks, about priorities and client-centered care and the medical diagnosis or what they may even have been admitted for into a hospital may not be actually what they're worried about. Like yep. I gave examples of 
people who were you know admitted for something doesn't even matter what it is but their priority is who's gonna feed my cat while i'm in here like (laughs) stuff like, like that like just because the priority that we may see from a medical point of view coming from our trained eye with working in a medical field may not even be remotely what the biggest issue is to that individual and unfortunately you're not going to read what that actually is in a medical chart you're going to have to talk to people Mm -hmm. you're going to have to find out about them and you're going to have to build an actual relationship with people rather than just a relationship with what their chart says yeah and i i can think of like two examples i attended a conference yesterday and these gals gave a great example of that where you know, they had a patient who kept being readmitted because they weren't going to dialysis. And so, of course, they were labeled non-compliant and all sorts of things with their plan of care. But when they sat and talked to the patient, they became aware of the, the fact that it wasn't that he didn't want to go to dialysis or he had a death wish. It was that he was claustrophobic. And so the idea of going and sitting in a dialysis chair for six hours hooked up to a machine, he just couldn't, he couldn't. He couldn't do it. And so he just didn't go to dialysis until he got so sick that he came back to the hospital and they were trying to address that. And the hospital said, well, that's not why he's you know, here. And, you know, they went on to talk about their advocacy around that. But I, you know, takes you back to that point. And I had a patient, again, a, a young guy who was labeled as non-compliant with his care because he wasn't going and getting injections for he needed some type of injection to maintain his condition. It was a, a, an unusual neurological condition. And so I remember I was like, well, why is this guy not doing it? Like he's 25. What is the issue here? And I sat and talked with him. Well, he didn't have transportation. So he didn't have a way to get to these infusion clinics. And he was so tired of being dismissed by clinical workers because there was also most likely some racism involved in his care. He was a, a black male. And so people just dismissed him. No one addressed the fact that it was a transportation issue. It wasn't that, again, he didn't want the injections, but he had a transportation issue and had a health insurance coverage issue. And no one works to address those. So this guy's just going to keep coming back and he's going to keep distrusting the system because we weren't willing to look at him as a person. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's where, yeah, you know, you kind of, I had all the information in the world in his medical chart, especially in the hospital. You've got all sorts of information in the hospital. I know what he's doing every hour of the day. Mm. But no one had bothered to ask what the barrier was to him being able to participate in what he needed to do. And if you don't have transportation, how are you supposed to get your injections? It has nothing to do with noncompliance. And you're not going to get that information from your hard sciences. <laughs> no, I, again, didn't need to know the brachial plexus to figure that out about him. No, no. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I still feel that a lot of people are just getting on board because of the title. Which, again, again, I know it seems like I'm kind of bashing on this movement. I guess I am on the movement itself, but probably more the the disconnect between the name of it and what's being presented and put out there. Because what's being presented and put out there is very, uh, I would say, blunt. And I've Mm -hmm. heard from a number of practitioners that feel... I guess you'd say person like attacked. Uh, it feels yeah. very blame. Uh, you know, if you're not doing it this way, then you're wrong, kind of thing. You're a bad therapist. You're, you're bad lazy. Therapist. You're dumb. You're lazy. Apparently, that's been said. Like you said, actually been overtly pointed out. Mm-hmm. And a lot of it just like I feel like the heart of it 
it probably it probably did start with something that was an issue for those individuals in their individual practice areas, something that was impacting them. But I just feel like the way that it's been managed, the way that it's happening, the way that it's being pushed, isn't doing them any favors, isn't doing the profession any favors. And you can kind of see that in the, I guess, some of the amendments. The, the There's been some changes to the, the original petition, so to speak. And one of the last amendments was essentially saying, you know, we're not changing any of the actual points that we're pushing, but we're changing the tone. And it's in quotes. I don't know why it's in quotes, but the voice and the tone of the petition were revised. That's to dismiss the people who are upset about the tone. You only put oh, yeah. things in air quotes it to feels, dismiss something. It feels, <laughs> it feels passive aggressive. Yes. Yeah. The, the key issue seems to be, we don't like AOTA in the grand scheme of things. But the reasons why don't actually align with what AOTA does, as we've we've explored earlier. So I, I don't know. I don't really... Yeah, I, I, I can't get behind it because it doesn't make any sense to me. And there's too many differing messages, even between the frequently asked questions and the actual petition there's differences in language. They're talking about a coalition in the frequently asked questions. And there's, I did see somewhere where it's, I think it's on their timeline. It has been formally made known that FSOTC is seeking to complement the efforts of our national bodies in supporting their efforts. That's not really clear in what they're actually pushing for no. in the, the, the petition. It, it very much seems like a, we're going to storm this capital kind of movement rather than a, hey, let's make everything better. And I think, as I'll always say in my consistent messaging, is it's important to go to the source, figure out where the information's coming from, figure out what the data is. Um, just because something's in a chart doesn't mean that it's accurate information. Figure out how the way that questions were asked to get the kind of information. There's lots of ways to word a question in a way that gets you the results that you wanted. You know, I just encourage people to do their research, never take something at face value. And that goes for, you know, even our conversation here. Don't take us at face value. That's do why, your research. Why I prefaced it at the start saying this is just our opinions on yeah. what we've had access to. And I, I know that there's going to be some blowback with regards to some people saying, oh, well, that's not what we meant. Well, that's fine. But that's how it's being interpreted by me. And that's obviously how it's being interpreted, at least most of it, by yourself which means that there's definitely other people that are out there that are interpreting it this way. So it might not be what you meant, if that's the case, but that's what you've said and that's what's being interpreted. So that is a marketing issue. It's kind of like saying that bullying is a joke. <laughs> like yeah. if a joke is interpreted as bullying, then it's no longer a joke, it's bullying, right? Uh, interpretation is important and how something is conveyed is important. Messaging is important and it's always a learning. And I think if you know this is going to become a more inclusive movement then fantastic and let's see you know proof is in the pudding and i'd like to see that and i'd like to see a more inclusive and comprehensive conversation and discussion around information and making sure that information is accurate because i have definitely seen instances where information is withheld to make things appear a certain way and 
I think that's just important to to recognize that, you know, if you see something that doesn't really feel right, and this goes for Medicare policy and everything else, there's a chance that something is a little bit off and to do your own research. And I think it's easy to feel like on social media that things are bigger than they are because those who speak loudest tend to get the most attention. But just because there aren't people who are speaking really loud doesn't mean that there aren't people out there who believe the same thing as you. And, you know, just because you don't know something doesn't mean that you're bad, just means that you need to learn and look things up. I learn something new every single day. I've gotten things wrong and that's fine to admit. And that's how life works because no one, you know, I think we've talked, no one can ever really be full scope. No one can ever really be, you know, fully informed and the most evidence-based and the most client-centered practitioner. If, and if that's what you have expect of yourself, then I encourage you to seek your own mental health help. You know, that if you are expecting yourself to be this perfect clinician, no then you're setting yourself up for failure and there's no such thing. And that's okay. I've made a large number of mistakes in my career and I'm only five years in. I'm sure I've got lots more mistakes to go. I fail every day is what I say, you know? And so give yourself a break and look up the information, make a decision for yourself. It's really hard to convey a nuanced message in 30 seconds in an hour. And that, you know, goes for this podcast, goes for anything that I put out on social media. You know, I get questions of like, well, this isn't always the case. I'm like, that's true. But I had a minute and a half to try and get a point across, <laughs> you know, and I can't capture that all in a, a 30 second reel or TikTok and, you know, five captions. And so do the research, go to the source and, and, and uh, make your own informed opinion. That's, that's what your patients expect of you. And that's what's expected of you as a professional and frankly, as an individual. 100%. And again, we're speaking from the context of well, two different countries, and we're not necessarily representing those countries as a whole. No. <laughs> um, so it may be different for every different country. I, do, I just want to finish, I just found this on their website, this quote, which kind of highlights to me one of the biggest issues, and it's an ill-informed issue, because the last sentence of this paragraph is, join the full-scope OT movement and let's re return OT to its original form together. OT's original form mm. didn't have any medical model. It was born out of a necessity to find things that work to treat people outside of the medical model. So if we're returning to that original form, one, personally, I'm all for that, but <laughs> that seems to be completely counter to absolutely everything else that's being portrayed in that everything else is being portrayed that we're taking away this medical model information out of our courses mm -hmm. and out of our profession and we're moving away from it and then we're returning to OT's original form. And frankly, OT's original form was community-based and there's also a lot of problems with OT's original form in terms of racism and institutionalization and ableism. And so, you know, returning to its original form certainly isn't something that I'm necessarily 100% voting for. Now, if we want to say we're going to advocate for expanding into areas like community-based settings and home health and, you know, and supporting occupational therapy in the medical model as well as all these other areas, fantastic. But to make this idea, I think that's a romanticizing of the past, which is always, always popular. Oh, yeah. Everyone has rose-colored glasses. Yeah, you know, the, the 50s were so much better, except for that women had no rights and couldn't vote, you know? like it's So, you know, there's always a grass is always greener. And I also encourage people that if you think that there needs to be change at the National Association, at your state association, that to get involved. Mm. You know, yelling from the outside is not usually the best way to make change. It's to have a seat at the table. And there are open volunteer positions currently at AOTA and 
I can tell you from someone who has had a seat at the table, who has been involved in the National Association, who's had a volunteer position, who continues to do contracting work on occasion with them, who honestly, frankly, considers many of the people at AOTA to be close friends and mentors, that moving away from the medical model couldn't be further from the truth. In my experience from working with these people and and I think that's what one of the problems where I start to feel very personally about the attacks on AOTA, because you have to remember when you're attacking an organization, you are inherently attacking the people who do the work. Especially volunteers. Oftentimes they're volunteers, hmm. they're other practitioners, and frankly, they're people who are just trying to do their job just like you are. And I've had, you know, I've, I've asked people, well, are you going to run for the board position or are you going to run for a position they say no well i don't have time or you know i've had people complain about the presence of you know they they didn't like that there wasn't enough advocacy focus at their state conference or at the national conference which i mean there's lots of advocacy sessions but like they didn't like the offerings of a conference i said well have you ever thought about presenting at the conference well no okay well if you have something that you want to see filled do it you know it would be great if AOTA could call my employer and say, stop treating Clarice poorly, you know, like I mean, my employer is myself. So, but now, but you know, like. That would be an awkward phone call. <laughs> yeah, that'd be very uncomfortable. Stop treating yourself so poorly, which I mean, note to self, but that's not how it works. Oftentimes, if you want something to change, you've got to lace up your boots and do the work yourself. The best kind of advocacy is grassroots and doing it. And so if you want to see change, then get involved and I don't see many of the leaders of this organization actually getting involved or having a seat at the table. Sending a certified letter is very different from having a volunteer position or taking a position or actually engaging in a productive conversation. You know, and I think we all need to remember to be empathetic that if you are burned out, I can guarantee you that other people are burned out and most people are just trying to do the best that they can. I find that majority of people are not actively working to hurt you or actively working against you, that if there's a mistake that's been made, let people know. But I think there's, especially on social media, it's much easier to jump to a conclusion that people are actively trying to harm you. And I find that if you if you dig a little deeper, that, that's, that's really not the case. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Thank you so much for coming and having this very in-depth. I've actually learned quite a lot uh, about advocacy and <laughs> politics and all sorts of stuff. Likewise. It's, it's, it's been very, very interesting. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. And likewise, I, I would like to also say, if anyone involved in that movement wants to come on and have a conversation with me or with us, I'm open to it. I'm, I'm more than fine yeah, to, same. to have that conversation. If you want to put your, your views out and we can discuss them in an open forum, then... Sweet. I'm, I'm happy for that to happen. Let me know. Yeah. And if you need a break from social media, take it. Yeah. Right? Well, I often find that when I, I take do. a break from social media, my worldview greatly improves. Yeah. <laughs> Perspective. It's great. Awesome. Well, thank well, you so you much for, for coming. And uh, yeah, uh, we will talk again very soon. If you made it this far, I want to just take a moment to say thank you so much for listening to the Amplify OT podcast, and I hope you're feeling a little more inspired and prepared to amplify your value and the value of occupational therapy. If you found yourself at any point thinking, gosh, I guess policy isn't that dull and boring, then you're definitely going to love how we talk about policy and advocacy in the Amplify OT membership. 
There's a link in the show notes where you can sign up today so you can take an immediate next step towards emerging as a confident clinician. And of course, don't forget to follow the Amplify OT podcast so that way you never miss an episode. And you know, while you're there, why don't you go ahead and leave us a five-star review because that's the best way to help others find the podcast too. And of course, thank you so much to Jessica Riccio for editing this podcast and for all of you for giving me a reason to record it. You're now officially part of the OT Amplifier community and you are now prepared to go out there and advocate for OT because remember, if we don't advocate for occupational therapy, then who will?